Hello, passengers, and welcome to the Midnight Train, America's second favorite podcast where we bring the dark to light, where history never dies, and where listener discretion is always advised. That's right. Watch the kitties. And uh, we make fun of and joke about the creepy and unsolved mysteries of the world, all while bringing you as much information on each topic as possible. Yes, we are a comedy podcast, and things can get a little bit dark. We do talk about some sensitive topics sometimes, like today. Oh, boy. But listen, if you're not into it, we get it. No hard feelings. But if you are, thank you for giving us a chance. And uh, welcome aboard the crazy train. (laughs) Hope I don't get sued for that. And uh, I am your host, the conductor of the cryptic Jonathan Sayer. That's right. I get my own today. And I want to say thank you so much for everyone returning that's listening. Uh, I know it's been a couple of uh, you know weeks since we've uh, dropped an episode or whatever, but uh, things have been absolutely nuts. And I will explain a lot at the end because, you know, that's what we do. Now, listen, I do have a very special Patreon coming out this week. So if you're a Patreon member, you'll be getting that here very soon. Uh, you may have already gotten it actually in your uh, Patreon feed for all you first class passengers. And uh, it's it's just something kind of special. It's not uh, creepy or crazy or anything like that. It's just, you know, it's it's I'm feeling special. It's feeling saucy, sensitive, if you will. <laughs> anyway, if you're not a Patreon member, do me a favor. Head on over to patreon.com forward slash the Midnight Train podcast or go to the Midnight Train podcast.com. That's our official website. Sign up and for five bucks a month, you will get all kinds of We have a back catalog of episodes and crazy things that we've done and just, you know, ghost haunts and uh, just all kinds of stuff. And it's five bucks. Get over there. Become a first class passenger. Support the show and all of that. Okay, I'm going to say that's enough. That's enough of me meandering and waffling about, if you will. So we're going to go ahead and get into this. All right. So everyone out there, if you're new, listen, (sighs) let's turn down the lights, adjust our seats. Grab a drink. Mm-hmm. Let's see what you guys are drinking out there. You guys got to let me know, too, when you listen to the episode. I want to hear, what are you guys drinking? What do you drink? Are you, is it non-alcoholic? Is it really alcoholic? Whatever it is, remember, every time that we drop some sort of a reference or a, uh, a quote from a TV show or a movie, you got to drink. So, sorry. It's just, that's the rules. I didn't make, I mean, I did make them up. Never mind. I was going to lie about that. Anyway, get your drink. And today, let's get, uh, oh boy, childish if you will. But first of all, oh, here's a toast to all you beautiful motherfuckers. Yes, yes, this is going to be a very sensitive episode today. And uh, before we get into that, though, listen, I know we change things a lot around here. Um, You know, we've been going for almost four years. This show has been going on. Should I say I've been going for four years? And I'll explain some later. Um, If you're not into that uh, little intro or toast or drink pop, if you will, uh, well, it'll change. (laughs) It always does. So just, you know, deal with it for now. 
And if you do like it, let me know. I, I've, I've gotten a few messages over where like, dude, that song's badass. And thank you for that. So, you know, anyway, moving on. So, yes, today we are talking about a pretty sensitive subject here. We're talking about uh, kids that kill. That's right. Children that murder. Mm-hmm. Murder. Somehow that seems disturbingly fitting. I don't know how I feel about that right now. <laughs> anyway, so some of the most infamous serial killers of the 20th century, you know, Ted Bundy, Ed Gain, Jeffrey Dahmer, and John Wayne Gacy, to name so many more, uh, they're names that we're familiar with. These murderers, you know, their heinous deeds have been the basis for numerous films, books, and television series, and so many other things. Podcasts and radio shows, TV shows, you name it, right? However, the public knew that although the killers might have had psychological issues, they were still adults who had committed some of the most brutal brutal murders, you know, to their victims. But what if the murderers weren't adults? So many of us struggle to comprehend why someone would commit murder because it, you know, it's considered a horrible and unfathomable act. Unfathomable. <laughs> There's a, woo, unfathomable. So yeah, it's a horrible act, right? And arguably the most, you know, the most horrible thing that one person can do to another person. Some of us even forget there, you know, there's no set age at which, you know, one might actually commit these murders. Some teenagers and young adults target their victims ruthlessly and viciously taking their lives, often without showing any regret and in ways that are hard for us to understand. Today, we're going to discuss a uh, plethora, if you will, a handful of killer kids whose uh, the, their tales might just keep you awake at night. From frying a victim's flesh and poisoning their family to slashing their neighbors and, uh, you know, just killing for fun. You know, just for the fuck of it. That's right. That's my first F-bomb. And uh, how, how far are we in right now? We're about five, about six minutes in, right? Seven minutes in? Eh, that's not too bad. I'm trying to clean it up, folks. All right? Like I said, it's a, it's a new... I'm turning over a new fucking leaf. <laughs> anyway... So yeah, if, you, if you're queasy and if you have children, this might disturb you a little bit more than some that don't, um, but this it's going to get ugly. So first of all, let's talk about this guy, Jesse Pomeroy. So he was accused of killing nine people by luring young boys into the nearby woods, where he would beat them with his fist, belts, knives, whatever he could find. Pomeroy was born in Boston, Massachusetts in 1859. Uh, his dad was a dock worker and unfortunately an alcoholic. Pomeroy was considered intelligent, but did not get along with the other kids because he was he was a big guy for his age. You know, of course, kids are assholes. He also had epileptic seizures occasionally, and he was born with a whitish membrane over his right eye, uh, kind of like a cataract. And since kids can be dicks, you can see how that could actually cause a problem with his peers. He wasn't into sports, and he spent most of his free time reading books about uh, the Indian Wars, which were considered violent back then, you know. When he played with other children, it was often as an Indian in uh, Scouts and Indians games, which is, I guess would be like Cowboys and Indians, right? Where he would reenact torture methods he had read about. Oh, boy. From a young age, Pomeroy was also horribly abused by his alcoholic father, which fucking sucks and fuck that guy. And we do have, if you're new here, we have uh, in on our Patreon, we have an entire, <laughs> entire show, I guess you'd say, sub show, whatever you want to call it, dedicated to just the pieces of crap much worse than that but it's called f that guy so anyway check that out so the typical punishment from his drunkard father was to be taken out to the outhouse stripped down naked and beaten with a belt until the boy was bleeding leading up to his 10th birthday pomeroy thought it would be a good idea to kill his mother's songbirds by ripping their heads off 
and then later caught, uh, you know, and tortured cats, um, or, you know, one in particular where he was actually caught in the act of torturing it uh, with what would inevitably be inevitably? <laughs> Boy, I have my mouth today. Yeah. Uh, it would become his weapon of choice, a knife. That's what he used on this poor little cat. And, you know, I don't like cats. You know, to be honest, fuck cats. I know if you, yeah, I, a lot of you guys are probably cat owners, but you know they're dickheads. I have two, all right? And one of them, he's amazing. He's a fat little fuck. And his name is, well, fittingly, Fatty. And then we have another one who is Lucius, who's, oh boy, we think he's like 20. He's over 20, whatever age he is. He's over 20. He's got one eye. One ear, he's bow-legged, snaggletooth, and just a crotchety old little shit. Ugh. Anyway, he's, he's sweet, I guess. Anyway, fuck cats. Not saying that they deserve to die. I'm not saying that at all. Okay, so anyway, just, just to put that there. So 12-year-old Pomeroy then upped his murder game to, of course, people. His first victim was William Payne, whose lifeless body was found in an outhouse on December 26th of 1871. Hmm, outhouse. Dad used to do some shit to me in there. You know, I, I, it's yeah, ugh. so the boy was only get this only four fucking years old. He was found hanging from the ceiling by a rope tied to his wrists, half dressed and suffering from hypothermia. The boy was also beaten repeatedly with a blunt object that was never identified. Months later, three young boys came forward and announced that they were lured to the same outhouse by an older boy with brown hair who played with himself while torturing them. Blech. Obviously, this crazy news got everyone in a tizzy, and the police posted a $500 reward for any information leading to the arrest of this little fucking creep. However, someone screwed up and reported that the sadistic shit responsible for the atrocities was a younger adult with red hair and a pointy beard. So, everyone was just on the lookout for a leprechaun. Mm-hmm. Not really, but that's what it fucking sounds like to me. Then on July 20th, 1872, 13-year-old Pomeroy... 13 at the time, received another beating from his father, and this one was the worst by far. Finally, Mama Ruth, as his mom over here, had enough of that shit, grabbed the knife, and chased Dad out of the fucking house. Good on Mom. Yes. Now, a few days later, she packed up her kids and moved to South Boston. Baston. That's right. Sath. The Sath side of Baston. <laughs> it's Sath. And it's stupid. Here, Pomeroy's attacks became more frequent and far more violent in nature. Pomeroy then started torturing local kids. Of course he did. He would just fuck with them because he was a fucking asshole. He scratched victim George Pratt with his nails, stabbed him with a needle, and took chunks out of his cheek and buttocks mm-hmm, with his freaking teeth. Yeah, he was just biting people. Another victim, Harry Austin, was stabbed repeatedly with a pocket knife, and Pomeroy attempted to cut off his penis. What the shit? Joseph Kennedy's face was slashed and his head was forcibly submerged into salt water after, you know, having his face slashed. Fuck. He then took a knife and sliced up um, Robert Gould, I believe I'm saying that right, Gould's scalp while attempting to cut the boy's throat and kill him. But Pomeroy was startled by people, you know, who were, you know, approaching and he just bonked out. Gould, bloody and scared to death, described his attacker as a, quote, big boy with a, quote, milky eye and not a fucking leprechaun. The cops asked Joseph Kennedy to accompany them to some of Boston's schools to help identify this little bastard that's running around, you know, running amok. Pomeroy evaded the police when they um, actually came to his school. And, uh, you know, so he was like, saw them coming and was like, Phew! but later it was weird. 
he would actually just walk into the police station as the officers were returning and then turn around and just run out immediately. And nobody has any idea why he did this. Like, what the shit? What are you doing, kid? Kennedy recognized him as he was trying to run out of the police station and Pomeroy was promptly arrested nearby. Pomeroy spent the night in a cell and was threatened with a 100-year prison term if he didn't confess and admit what he had done. Pomeroy admitted to all of the attacks and was sentenced to the Westboro Boys Reform School until he turned 18 years of age. While there, he was on his best behavior, and his mother, who was convinced that her little boy was framed, fought to get him released, and he was granted an early release just a year and a half into his sentence. All right, so he's he's probably changed his ways, I would assume, right? <laughs> I think we all know that's not the truth. On March 18, 1874, only six weeks after his release, 15-year-old Pomeroy was working at Mama's shop when a 10-year-old girl named Katie Curran, or Curran, I'm going to say Curran, walked in looking for notebooks. Okay, little girl coming in, wants a notebook. Pomeroy told her to follow him downstairs to see if any were down there. In the cellar, he attacked her, slashing her throat and stabbing her in the genitals repeatedly to, quote, see how she would react. He hid the child's body under a pile of ashes behind a water closet, scrubbed off the blood, and went back to work as if nothing had happened. Now, the following month, he was back, you know, to attempting to lure in young boys, but none of them actually fell for his bullshit. Or they were with somebody who knew what he had done and who he was and, you know, took them away before they had a chance. he had a chance to, uh, you know, act upon his little sadistic fantasies. Then, four-year-old Horace Millen's body was found in a marsh outside of the city. He had been stabbed and mutilated. Pomeroy was arrested and confessed. Of course he did. When authorities asked him, then 14 years old, 14, if he killed Mullen, he responded, quote, I think I did. Pomeroy recanted after talking to a lawyer. Mm-hmm. And then finally, due to the neighborhood uproar, Mama Ruth was forced to sell her shop, which led to the discovery of little Katie Curran's mutilated body. That's the one he hid behind the water thing in the basement. Mm-hmm. Pomeroy confessed to Katie's death only after investigators told him that his mother and older brother were going to be arrested as accomplices. Pomeroy stood trial for Millen's murder, but not Katie Curran's. Weird. Still, this newest development made his lawyer switch from an innocent plea and try to get him acquitted with an insanity plea. Mm-hmm. And we all know how that kind of works, right? Like, it doesn't work very often. I think it's like 1% of all cases, and then of that, it's like 1% of those cases actually get it. The jury saw through all this bullshit and said, quote, go fuck yourself. Okay, they really didn't say that, but I did. In February of 1875, Pomeroy was found guilty of Millen's murder and was sentenced to be executed by hanging. That's right. However, the execution was delayed for a year, and they eventually commuted his sentence to life in solitary confinement. This change was due to two governors refusing to sign the death warrant, most likely because Pomeroy was only 16 years old at the time. For 41 years, Pomeroy got to speak to no one other than the prisons, uh, the, the attending guards there and his mother, who would come to visit him once a month until she unfortunately passed away. In 1917, Pomeroy was uh, permitted to join the prison's uh, general population, so he finally got to go into Gen Pop. Then, due to a, a decline on his health, in 1929, they moved him to a prison farm. There, he died from natural causes in 1932 at the age of 72 years old. Pomeroy admitted to 27 victims, and investigators found the remains of 12 other bodies in his former residence. You heard that right. In his old house, they found 12 more bodies. Known as the Boston Boy Fiend, 
Uh, he is the state of Massachusetts' younger, uh, youngest, excuse me, first-degree murderer ever. Yet he's not the youngest serial killer on our list. All right, so now we're on to a young one named Mary Bell. All right, she was born to a, a 16-year-old sex worker named Betty on May 26th of 1957. It's been said that her mother told the doctors to, quote, take that thing away from me when Mary was born. So not a good start, you know, definitely. Mama was often away on special, quote, business trips to Glasgow, Scotland. Still, these uh, trips were, you know, kind of a vacation for Mary due to Mama Betty's mental and physical abuse while she was home. So, of course, you know, mom's not very nurturing. Mm-hmm. Betty's sister witnessed Mama Betty trying to uh, give Mary away to a woman who had unsuccessfully tried to adopt her, but uh, her sister saved Mary, okay? Or she actually tried to adopt. She was trying to adopt, and basically Betty's mom was like, here, take mine. And her sister was like, uh, no. Unfortunately, Mary was so accident-prone also that uh, she, quote, fell from a window and, quote, accidentally overdosed on sleeping pills at a different time. This is a kid who's overdosed. And listen, I get it. It's the 50s. Maybe, maybe, maybe the medicine, you know, before the anti-I-can't-open-them bottles, you know, you know what I'm talking about. Maybe before those, maybe she got a hold of them. It is possible, but mom just, even, even if that's the case, mom wasn't paying attention. You know what I mean? Like, come on, dude. Some folks thought Mama Betty was just trying to get rid of her unwanted child, while others saw these symptoms of Munchausen syndrome by proxy. Nevertheless, Betty loved the attention and sympathy her daughter's accidents, you know, actually brought to her, of course. And if you know what Munchausen's a Munchausen syndrome by proxy, Munchausen syndrome is when somebody creates illnesses to get attention, and uh, Munchausen syndrome by proxy is when they use, normally it's their child, but somebody else, and basically cause them to be sick in order to get attention from them. And there's been plenty of cases for that. I'll have to cover some stuff on that because it's insane. It's absolutely insane. So later accounts given by Mary say her mother began to use her and use Mary for sex work when she was only four years old. So that's fucking horrible. However, family members have never confirmed this nastiness. And uh, in addition, Mary witnessed her five-year-old friend Oh boy, her five-year-old friend actually got run over and killed by a bus, making some of her family believe that this was the occasion that permanently scarred little Mary. This was the moment that the switch just went, you know. In the weeks leading up to her first murder, Mary was allegedly acting all kinds of weird. Then on May 11th, 1968, Mary had been playing with a three-year-old boy when he was severely injured in a fall from the top of an air raid shelter. The air raid shelter, Jesus. Uh, remember that time? I mean, I don't know. Most of you probably don't, but yeah, it's crazy. Sorry, I'm going off on a tangent there. Although the boy's parents thought it was an accident, you know, it was. You should kind of suspect things, you know. Mary, Mary's was there, and you know, maybe just look into it. The very next day, three separate mothers came forward to tell the police that Mary had attempted to choke their young girls. No charges were filed, but the police gave Mary a very stern talking to after her official interview. Ooh, no, listen here, Mary. <laughs> See? No, this is the 60s. <laughs> I'm like going all the way back to the 40s. No, it's like the 60s. It's 68. Yeah, like, geez. Then one day before turning 11, on May 25th, Mary strangled Martin Brown to death in an abandoned house in Scottswood, England. Martin was only four years old. Mary took off from the murder scene and returned with her friend Norma. When they returned, they found two local boys playing in the house, and they discovered the body. Okay. Just remember Norma's name here. So you got Mary, 
You got Norma. <sighs> Shockingly, there were no apparent signs of violence aside from a small amount of blood and saliva on the poor child's face. However, they found an empty bottle of painkillers on the floor nearby. Weird. With no other evidence presented, the police assumed that poor little Martin had actually swallowed the pills. Because remember, she strangled him. Therefore, they actually ruled his death as an accident. Then Mary shows up at the Browns' house and asks if she can see him. She wants to see Martin. Okay, this is after she had killed the little boy. She went to his house, his parents' house, and asked if she could see him. Okay, and going back to, like, as far as the, you know, the, 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 the cops and whatnot... You're not thinking that an 11-year-old killed a 4-year-old. That's that's probably the last thing on your mind. So I know everyone's like, what the fuck with the cops? I mean, seriously, especially back then, you're not thinking that some 11-year-old girl murdered this 4-year-old little boy, you know? At least I, I don't think, I wouldn't assume you would be, you know? I mean, I don't, what do I know? I'm freaking yammering into this mic. Anyway, so he she goes to the house, right? She goes up, knocks on the door. Hey, is Martin here? His mother kindly tells Mary that little Martin has passed. But Mary says, quote, I already knew that. I wanted to see his body in the coffin. What the fuck? Rightfully, Martin's mother kicked the little psycho off her doorstep and slammed the door in her face. Okay, she didn't kick him or kick her. She should have. God. But she did slam the door and be just hard as fuck. Like, told her, like, get the fuck out of here. So what does Mary do? Well, little Mary here. She and her friend Norma break into a nursery school and vandalize it with notes they had written taking responsibility for Martin's death and promising to kill again. Police assumed the letters were just some sort of a sick joke, and of course, they were like, nah, somebody's just fucking around. Yeah, it's fine. <laughs> it's just, come on, kids will be kids. Mary was considered a braggart and a liar by her classmates, so no one believed her when she told everyone at school that she'd actually killed little Martin until the body of another little boy was found. Just two months after the first murder, on July 31st, Mary and her PIC Norma here strangled three-year-old Brian Howe to death. However, Mary switched it up this time and mutilated his little body with scissors, scratching his thighs and, oh boy, butchering his penis. What the fuck is wrong with these fucking kids? Jesus. Ah, We're only on the second one right now. You know what I mean? Like, I have kids. I have kids. I have five. I have five children. You know what I mean? I could not even, even, and a granddaughter. I couldn't even, <laughs> I couldn't even think it. I, I, how, how do you, I, I couldn't, I couldn't even fathom them doing something like this. When people noticed little Brian was around, or wasn't around, excuse me, uh, Brian's sister, you know, went out looking for him. And guess who offered to help her? <laughs> oh, that's right. Murderous Mary and nutty Norma. <laughs> they sure did. <laughs> nope, you don't get that, you fuckers. They helped search the neighborhood, and Mary pointed out the concrete blocks um, that Brian's body was actually hidden under. She was like, oh, what about over there? But Norma said, quote, nah, he wouldn't be there. And Brian's sister just kept looking at other places. So the poor boy's body was underneath those bricks. Like, they're toying with people. They're like 11, 12 years old, and they're toying with people. After murdering... Oh, God. And it did... Listen, it gets much worse. And I'm, I'm, I'm fired up right now, but just wait... The neighborhood went into an uproar when Brian's body was found finally, and they were now, you know, there were now two little boys who were dead. The coroner's report came back, and holy shit, as Brian's blood had cooled, there were new marks they hadn't seen. Some crazy little shit had used a razor blade to scratch the letter M into his poor little chest. 
On top of that, the lack of force found in his murder told investigators that Brian's killer might just be a child. Oh boy. Being the narcissistic little turds that they were, Mary and Norma couldn't hide their interest in the murder when interviewed by the investigators. Norma was as giddy as a schoolgirl. No pun intended. Well, kind of. And Mary acted pensive, especially when they told her that she had been seen with Brian the day he died. She was like, who, me? Not me. Kidding. Don't hate your kids. Unless they're murdering people that beat the shit out of them. I'm kidding again. Maybe. The day Brian was buried, creepy-ass Mary was seen poking around his house, laughing and rubbing her hands together like some evil villain in a James Bond movie, especially when she saw little Brian's coffin. Mary was brought back for another interview with police and told them a story about seeing some eight-year-old boy hitting Brian the day he died, saying she saw him with a pair of broken scissors. Oh, I saw that little boy. Yeah. Who, me? Little did she know that information uh, that they uh, that information about the scissors had never been released publicly. After more and more questioning and the police thinking she was a little fucking devil, the two girls began talking. Norma, of course, blamed Mary, who admitted to being there when Brian was murdered, but Mary said Norma had killed the little boy. Hmm? After being charged, the trial began with the prosecutor proclaiming to the court that Mary killed Brian, quote, solely for the pleasure and excitement of killing. The jury didn't have a problem seeing Mary for who she was and found her guilty of manslaughter. Mm-hmm. So why not murder? Well, the court psychiatrist convinced the jury that Mary couldn't be held fully responsible due to her, quote, classic symptoms of psychopathy. Mm-hmm. Is it psychopathy or psychopathy? It's got to be psychopathy, right? I don't know. You guys decide. Whatever. Either I'm wrong or I'm right. Either way. So now Norma was fucking acquitted as they believed she was just under Mary's lousy influence and was just an unwilling accomplice. Mary was sentenced to an intermediate amount of time in custody, also known as, uh, quote, Her Majesty's Pleasure, which sounds really fucking bad, as the judge professed that she was dangerous and a threat to other children. After only 12 years, the courts believed Mary was rehabilitated, and she gone. Bye. She was released. Of course, her release was predicated on her still serving her sentence, but she could do so while living out in the free world. like uh, Kind of like a lifetime probation kind of thing. Mary was given a new identity, but still had to move multiple times when someone would find out who she actually was. She still lives in protective custody at to this day and an undisclosed address protected by the British courts. To the dismay of many people, including the family of Martin Brown. I am fucking sure they're not happy about it. Oh boy, yeah, that's number two on our list here, and it's 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 getting uh it's getting a little hairy, isn't it? You know, it's getting a little hairy. Now this next one here, mm-hmm. I almost don't want to tell you guys w- when this this happened, so maybe I won't. Maybe I'll leave that part out until the very end. Okay, so some of you may know about this story, but but yeah. So Amarjit Sada was born to parents who were laborers in Bihar. The family was uh, dirt poor and could barely get by, but when Amarit was seven. His mama popped out a baby girl. Hey, baby girl. After that, the impoverished family had uh, more miles to feed, and life be, uh, became even more challenging. Amarjeet was a quiet kid who kept to himself. He played with knickknacks, climbed trees, and puttered around, you know, their little village. The little uh, the little guy here, had, uh, he didn't have any friends and just seemed to like being alone. You know, he, he enjoyed his solitude. At one point, Amarjeet's aunt, aunt, and six-month-old cousin, well, they came to visit, Right? His aunt, aunt, whatever, 
had just found a job in the nearby city and asked to leave her little one with Amarjeet's family until she settled down and established herself in her newfound career, okay? The aunt has a job and she's like, hey, but do you mind watching my little shit? And they're like, sure, why not? In the days following, old auntie left to do her thing and his uh, mother, um, Amarjeet's mother, went to the local market to buy some food and left him in charge of his young sister and cousin. Maybe the new sister, you got a little baby sister and now the little cousin. As his six-month-old cousin slept peacefully in bed, something inside Amarjeet just snapped. At first, he pinched and slapped the baby, skipping around, giddy as could be, as the, de- the defenseless child began to cry. Then, enthralled in his dististic... Dis- <laughs> Way to go, Dickle. My mouth, sometimes... You guys know. Whatever. I'm not even... Whatever. So, it, he was enthralled... You know, in his little twisted state of mind here, he uh, intensified what he was doing to this little baby, wrapping his his hands around the infant's throat to stifle its breath as the baby gasped for air and began to cry more intensely, obviously. Amarjeet absolutely loved the, uh, the whole ordeal that was going on, laughing and seemingly mesmerized by what was happening. Then, at last, the child was motionless suffocated by the hands of his older cousin who was left to watch over and protect the innocent baby. Next, quietly and with the uh, lifeless child in tow, Amarjeet snuck out to the nearby forest, grabbed a random brick, and used it to decimate the baby's tiny little head. Finally, he entombed the baby under a patch of grass and remorselessly returned home, quiet and without a care. Right. Oh boy. So yeah, he's six 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 or so at this time. Six, maybe seven at this time. Yeah. And he's already just d- it happily murdered this little baby. When Amberjeet later confessed to his mother, she was horrified and had no idea what to do with him or the situation, obviously. Well, I, I would know what to do, but she did not. That e- evening, his father uh, whooped his ass for what he had done, but it was too late. You know what I mean? That's it. The, the kid was gone. Then, their first mistake actually took place. Being the doting parents they were, they developed an accident story for the aunt instead of taking his little ass to the police. No one knows if the aunt fell for the ruse, but Amarjeet was off the hook for now. Yeah, so the parents are protecting him. And I get it. And and this is India and, and, and Indian people and their civilization. They, they're very family, super important. I mean, it's important to everybody, but like over there... They handle things internally, from what I've read. And if I'm wrong on that, please let me know. But they handle things internally, and this is something, this is a family matter. You know, this is a family thing, not going to the cops, period. So now, having tasted what it was like to commit a horrendous act and just about get away with it, young Amarjeet became even more gregarious and set his malicious sights on his next victim. One afternoon in winter, his parents were napping when he focused on his eight-month-old baby sister. He snuck up to the child while, uh, with a smile and gently lifted her from her bed. He then wrapped his juvenile hands around the infant's throat and strangled her until she was no longer alive. Amarjeet's mother, hearing her youngest child in distress, woke up but wasn't awakened in time. The baby was gone. Both his mother and father were appalled with his father slapping the taste out of Amarjeet's mouth and furiously asking him, Why did you do it? Amarjeet simply answered, Quote, just like that. What the shit? Oh my God. I know. I know. I know. I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm okay. Mm-hmm. 
The young murderer wasn't as lucky this time as the neighbors discovered his treacherous acts and advised Emerjeet's parents to contact the police and turn his evil ass over. Yet his parents made their second mistake and again protected him, begging the neighbors to not say anything. Amarjeet once again murdered a small child with seemingly zero repercussions. As he put it, you see, he was addicted to the, quote, game. Mm-hmm. It was a game to him. Then, um, shortly after, he saw an infant inside a baby stroller under a tree while hanging about the nearby school. He's just hanging out. I don't know why he's not in there. Maybe it's after hours. I don't know. The little girl's mother went inside the school to grab something and left her six-month-old sleeping under the previously mentioned tree. Amarjeet snagged up the baby and took it into the forest, uh, forest across from the school. As with his first victim, he killed the child by bludgeoning her face uh, with a rock. Oh, boy. He then found a spot in the grass, hit her body, and walked away like his actions and the baby were nothing. The baby's mother returned, saw the stroller empty, and justifiably freaked the fuck out. As people searched the surrounding area for the child, somebody remembered that they had seen Amarjeet with her, carrying her away. He was brought in for questioning and confessed in explicit detail while additionally confessing to other murders. Well, the other murders, the other murders that, yeah, with the first two. With Amarjeet's confession, the police believed they had uh, enough to file charges. However, Indian law says he couldn't be convicted because he wasn't an adult. He was subsequently sent to a juvenile remand home for three years, uh, three years, but has remained silent and hidden ever since. So, you guys want to know when that last murder took place, if you don't already? That was 2007. Yeah, buddy. Think about that for a second. And so this little dude is out there probably in what is, I'm really bad at math. So in his, his, he was born in 95. Is that right? 95, 98, 98. So he's 23, 24, right? He's kicking it. Yeah. Fucking, this guy's out there somewhere. Oh boy. It's, 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 it's baffling. Mind bottling. It's like when you have so many thoughts inside your head and they get all bottled up. All right. Now we have Charles Charlie Starkwa- uh, Starkweather, Starkwater, where my mouth said no. All right, uh, so he grew up in a respectable home uh, with uh, well-behaved siblings. All right? He was the third of seven children, okay, so lots of kids. On the other hand, Starkweather had a difficult time at school since he was frequently taunted and, well, people fucked with him because he had flaws. Yeah, he was uh, born, he had a genu verum, okay? I, it, I, apparently, it's a limb deformity, right? He also had a speech impediment and severe myopia. He only did well in gym class, and, um, you know, he gained some weight because of it, you know, so people like to fuck with him. Starkweather went from, you know, being bullied to actually bullying others because he put on some weight, and he said, y'all ain't gonna do this anymore. So from being the most well-behaved kid to the most troublesome student, um, after he got his new, you know, his buffness, when Carol Ann Fugate, then 13 years old, was, you know, introduced to 18-year-old Starkweather, uh, the two immediately fell in love. All right, this was in 1956, and they were just enamored with each other. Charlie gradually concluded that they could, uh, you know, he could get money and, uh, you know, and some respect by going out and committing crimes. You know, I'm gonna get myself some respect because I'm big. Come on, babe. I don't know if that's how they talked or not. <laughs> so old Charlie here killed his first person in December of 1957. And immediately experienced calm and euphoria. Yeah, he enjoyed it. 
Charlie told Carol that uh, everything the uh, the the day after robbing, well, he told her everything the day after robbing and killing the first victim, who was Robert Colvert. All right, so obviously they grew closer because he told her what the fuck happened, but unfortunately it would also result in the mass murder road trip that Charlie, who was 19 at the time, and his girlfriend, who was 14, would go to carry out. All right, so for two months... They went out on a murder spree, and uh, if you've seen the movie California with Brad Pitt, with a K, or Natural Born Killers, these two are kind of the basis for both those movies. Mm-hmm. So between 1957 and 1958, uh, so December of 57 to January, those two months, they shot, stabbed, sexually raped, and strangled 11 different people in Nebraska and Wyoming, including mm-hmm, his girlfriend's family. All right, he they murdered his girlfriend's family. And on the day of the last murder, they encountered the cops. After Starkweather's girlfriend actually confessed, they were, you know, apprehended, obviously. And he was convicted of the murder of Robert Jensen, the only murder he was tried for. Okay? There was only one. So they went out and killed freaking 12 what, 12 people total? 12, 13, and only one. So 17 months after his arrest, he was sentenced to death in the electric chair and was executed at the Nebraska State Penitentiary in Lincoln, Nebraska on 12 at 12.04 on June 25th of 1959. Bye-bye. Bye. Carol Ann Fugate, his little 14-year-old lover, um, was convicted as an accomplice and received a life sentence. However, she was paroled in June of 1976 after serving only 17 and a half years at the Nebraska Correctional Center for women in New uh, in York, Nebraska, not New York, Nebraska. That's weird. There, there probably is a New York, Nebraska, but so yeah, she only did 17 and a half years and he got the old, you know, so I don't know. Not, not good. Not good. No, of course, you know, he wasn't really a child there. He might as well have been. He was 18 when he started this, but she was 14. Like, ugh. All right, moving on. 11 year old Jordan Brown murdered his father's 26 year old fi- uh, fiance, Kenzie Hook who was eight months pregnant on February 20th of 2009. Little Brown here used a rifle he was given by his father to shoot his future stepmother in the back of the head while she was sleeping. He had just boarded the school, uh, the bus for school when the eldest daughter of his, you know, of Kenzie, of his future stepmother, actually called the neighbors to tell them what this little shit did. And then when the uh, police later arrived, they found a shotgun inside the home and the identifiable scent of burning gunpowder. And they know what that smells like. So when you walk in, you know. And that day, Jordan was interrogated by Pennsylvania State Police twice before being taken into custody. It was later determined that uh, Hoke, his step future stepmother, was fatally shot using a 20-gauge Harrington and Richardson shotgun. And the prosecutor surmised that young Brown killed his soon-to-be stepmother due to jealousy of the attention his stepsisters received and was even more upset about the upcoming birth of another sibling. Although he was convicted of first-degree murder as a juvenile, prosecutors wanted him convicted as an adult. However, in a strange turn of events, in 2018, so just recently, well, recently, five years ago, whatever, little Jordan here was actually found not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt due to the court finding that the presented evidence could have been fabricated by an unidentified assailant and wasn't sufficient enough to support a guilty verdict. What the shit? I guess he had a good lawyer. So remember earlier we, we talked about the two friends that were killing the, the little boys and cutting off their, yeah, those things. Well, 
We got another couple here. 14-year-old Shirley Wolf had a journal, as many young people and some older people actually do. However, we'd be willing to bet dollars to pesos that almost all those journal journals never had the words, quote, Today, Cindy and I ran away and killed an old lady. And not only just said it, but meant it. This entry was written on the day young Shirley helped to kill a great-grandmother, adding, quote, It was really enjoyable. But strangely, Shirley and 15-year-old Cindy Collier, these two friends, they were only friends for a day. They had just met the day before. So the young girls attempted all kinds of tricks like needing directions, you know, hey, can you show me where to go? Asking for a glass of water or needing to use the phone in order to get into the homes of the elderly. Two older women in the building, I mean, they actually saw the girls and sensed an uneasiness about them. So they locked their doors and windows and were like, mm-mm, mm-mm, <laughs> I've seen Matlock. Mm-mm. I don't know if Matlock was out then. Maybe, I don't know. However, 86-year-old Anna Brackett was duped by the girls who seemed you know, innocent enough. They seem nice. So she invited the girls into her two-bedroom condo, not realizing these two little shitbags were anything but innocent. The two tweens viciously and repeatedly stabbed the ex-seamstress once they were inside. Collier stabbed the elderly, uh, elderly lady with a knife from the kitchen as Shirley tossed her to the floor by her throat. So she grabbed her and the other one was just sitting there just shanking her. The final blows by Shirley came after she stabbed her in the neck multiple times. Quote, then I stabbed and stabbed. I stabbed her in the neck because if she lived, she would know who we are and report us. That's from Shirley. Then, of course, the two psychos searched the condo for whatever valuables they could find, including the woman's car keys. How these two idiots thought they could go on a joyride is completely beyond me, but that's what they were looking for. Shirley Wolf immediately confessed upon questioning by the authorities and her accomplice Collier stated, quote, we wanted to do another one. We only desire to murder someone. To have some fun. In July of 1983, Anna Brackett's teenage killers were found guilty of first-degree murder and burglary. It was a non-jury trial, and the judge took only 15 minutes to decide, you are fucked. Shirley's lawyer argued that this client, uh, that his client, excuse me, was insane, blinded by, quote, a rage she felt from a lifetime of abuse. That's according to UPI out there. Three solid days of psychi- uh, psych- psychiatrist. <laughs> How do you say that? A psychiatrist. Three solid days of psychiat. I did it again. Psychiatrist. <laughs> yeah, I'm fine. <laughs> Three solid days of psychiatrist diagnoses convinced the judge that Shirley was a, quote, cold-blooded killer and completely fucking sane at the time of the murder. The two girls received the same sentence, eight years in a juvenile detention facility. In addition, both, you know, they were dickheads while they were in there serving their time and were given more time because of it. Collier was released in 1992 and studied law while she was incarcerated. She got married, had four children, and has lived quietly ever since. Shirley, on the other hand, the future serial murderer, continued to fuck up and then she just disappeared. Nobody knows where she is, who she is. Or what she's doing. Like, nothing. Nobody has any freaking idea. Wild, right? Now, Rand, let's talk about David Brom. He is uh, considered a mass murderer because on uh, the morning of February, uh, well, a February morning, should I say, in 1988, uh, he used an axe to just dice up his whole family, for most of his whole family. Following an altercation between, you know, himself and his father the previous evening in Minnesota. 
All right, so this is where it took place in their home in Minnesota. The 16-year-old skipped school today following the killings and persuaded a classmate to do the same, telling her in graphic detail what he'd actually done. He described how he used an axe to slaughter his family and how his father struggled with while being attacked. He then told the student that he had a disagreement with his dad about the music he was listening to at around 11.30 p.m. Is this 88? Oh, it's probably like, I don't know, Wasp? <laughs> Striper? I don't know, something like that. He then stayed up till 3 in the morning, went into his parents' room, and went at his dad first. After that, he killed his mother and his sister. And then he went to turn and put the axe on his brother. The management of his school was informed, so the people there, they got a hold, were gotten a hold of, should I say, and they called the cops. Because of his age, his case was initially sent to the juvenile justice system, as it normally does. Yet, because it was such a just in horrible, horrible crime, he was transferred to the adult system. The main emphasis of the trial and media coverage was whether or not he was legally insane when he diced up his parents, because, uh, you know, it, that that's... That's what they were trying to do, you know, as far as his legal, his defense is, they're trying to say, okay, was, was he crazy at the time? Was he illegally insane or whatever? So he was actually found guilty of first degree murder in October of eight, uh, 1989. He received three consecutive life sentence, consecutive, not concurrent. He is currently housed at the Minnesota Correctional Facility in Stillwater. Yeah, he diced up his whole family and he's not getting out. You're not going anywhere, buddy. All right, so when two 10-year-olds, uh, let's see, Robert Thompson and John John Venables, or Venables, Venables, that sounds right. We're, we're going to do that, yeah. Well, they decided they didn't want to go to school and just skip that shit uh, in uh, February of 1993, and they decided they were going to lure a two-year-old kid away from his mom. The boys were seen on surveillance, you know, watching, you know, kids and probably just looking for a victim to fuck with. And they were observed taking a number of things while they were in the mall, including candy, a uh, a troll toy, batteries, and a container of blue paint. Okay, um, so the little boy James Bulger was you know recognized. Like the boys actually recognized who this kid was, and made the decision to approach him while he was you know his mother was off doing something else. Bulger was uh, led out. Bulger or Bulger? It might be Bulger, like Whitey, Whitey Bulger, Bulger, Bulger. We'll say Bulger. So they brought him out of you know the mall, like, come on, let's go, man. Look at all the candy I got. And uh, they wanted to actually push him into oncoming traffic. All right. So they ended up going to a set of train tracks, and instead they uh, they chose to drive uh, 2.5 miles through Walton, Liverpool, okay, over in London. So now there were 38 different people who saw the boys and Bulger while they were strolling around Liverpool. Bulger had a bump on his forehead and was crying, for you know, obviously because fucking with him but nobody stopped to help now they then stripped Bulger of his clothing when they got to the railroad tracks put batteries in his mouth painted his eye his eye like eyeball flung bricks and stones at him and dropped a 22 pound iron rod on him then piled boulders on top of his body so a train passing by would mutilate it as it went by the two kids were identified by the police using the CCTV footage, and after being tried and convicted, they became the 20th century's youngest murderers at the time. Because remember, this was before the, the little Indian boy. Yeah, oh boy. But 10 years old. 10 years old. 10. At 10 years old, I, I was playing G.I. Joes and 
in in freaking I don't know what else watching probably GI Joe on TV. That's because I was big at the GI Joes. Transformers. I was doing uh, Thundercats. Yeah, yeah. What else? What else was I doing? Not GoBots. GoBots was lame. It was like the the Walmart of Transformers. Anyway, that's what I was doing. Ten years old. Jesus. Then there was Eric Smith. All right. Now, Eric Smith was uh, known to be caring and a, a, a funny kid when he was little, and uh, but it changed as he got older. He had been identified as having intermittent explosive disorder, a mental illness that leads to unpredictable and violent behavior. All right, so he definitely needed some help. At his age, it was uh, it, it was actually uncommon for kids his age to actually have this thing. He just freaking snapped and went off. He was a uh, recluse who, uh, you know, he's bullied, you know, because of how he looked. He had like, you know, weird ears and thick glasses. Oh, and he was a ginger and had freckles. So listen, I'm just saying, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not saying it's okay, but I understand. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, my my uh, youngest son actually is, he's kind of a ginger and has freckles and stuff. So I love him. I love you, Riley. So now of of because of this. As a result, Derek Robbie became the target of, you know, Eric Smith's, you know, his 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 anger. Like that this is he was pissed off because he was getting messed with because the way he looked. And he's got this anger built up in him. He's like the, the the red-haired incredible Hulk, you know, except without the muscles and stuff. I don't know, he may have muscles. It's a weird sight. A green guy with red hair. Anyway. So now when he was 13, all right, he actually killed Derek Robbie and he was only four years old at the time uh, the the boy and you know again said hey let's go out into the woods that, that's the thing with all these kids like literally everybody's like let's go to the woods shit that's it let's get rid of all the woods no more kids are dying that's it all right so the little kid was uh, brought into the woods by Smith who then beat him over the head with a rock strangled him and oh boy sodomized him with a tree branch yeah uh he would later claim that he uh he did that to make sure that he was dead yeah I, i'm gonna make sure he's dead by shoving this up his oh, get the fuck out of here a few hours after the mother of the young kid reported him missing the body was discovered young smith confessed to his family that same week he is currently incarcerated in a medium security facility in new york state after being charged with second degree murder Jesus. All right, now let's talk about Peter Woodcock. Oh, boy. This serial killer and child rapist from Canada had indicators of psychopathy from a young age. When he was just a teenager, okay, he would uh, uh, he'd start choosing his victims while riding his bike around the, you know, just his little place in Toronto. He would uh, bike around and, uh, you know, he had a dream while he was biking around, you know, out there by himself in the cool Toronto wind. And he was the leader of a gang. That's right. Leader of the Winchester Heights gang. Mmm, he's gonna start a gang. That's right. Cool wind in his hair, being all cool and shit. And this gang, well, it was a group of 500 kids. That's right. 500 invisible kids. Yeah. Now, his foster parents were aware, 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 aware that he, uh, you know, occasionally just would ride his bike around just wherever he wanted to. And uh, they were actually horrified to find out that he had been sexually abusing kids a lot of kids so between 1956 and 1957 he actually killed three of them all of them under the age of 10 
and uh, they were the kit the killings here were committed uh, you know by strangling you know he would every single one of them was just with his bare hands or with something but anyway that's how he did it and before he actually killed his victims he would also beat them and uh, forcefully insert things into orifices what the fuck Ah, after being observed, you know, biking around uh, away from his last, his most previous victim here, he was caught and declared not guilty due to insanity. He would be taken to a mental hospital with the highest level of security. And um, it was actually released to a lower level facility as you know, he started to seem less dangerous, you know, because he's getting older and maybe he's behaving well. So now he is now known as David Michael Kruger. All right. He fell in love with a patient there at this mental hospital. And, uh, you know, didn't really want anything to do with him. Let's be honest here. Okay. So the patient, the patient was like, nah, man. So Kruger persuaded Bruce Hamill, Hamill, Hamill. Yeah. A, uh, a, a previous lover to assist him in killing that person while they were out on a weekend pass. Dennis Kerr. This is the patient that was not into old Woodcock, uh, was stabbed by, ha- uh, Hamill. Damn it, why can't I say that name? Hamill and Kruger both. And after the murder, Kruger went to the police and reported himself. He turned himself in and he was returned to the high security facility where he eventually died 19 years later. Yikes. Like, here you go. You got you got a guy who did some f- bad shit as a kid. Horrible shit. But then they're like, okay, wait a minute. He seems to be doing okay. And then because somebody else wasn't into him, he kills him telling you man there that's that thin line there where you know there's rehabilitation and there's some people that just cannot be rehabilitated so you, they, you gotta be real careful with that then there's craig chandler price also known as the warwick slasher okay <laughs> he was detained after four different murders and he was only 13 years old he killed his first victim after breaking into their home which is only two houses away from the one he lived in. He used a kitchen knife to stab a uh, 27-year-old resident 58 times. That is a lot. I mean, you, you, if you took your hand right now and you on your desk or your car steering wheel or wherever you're at right now and you just hit 58 times, counted it 58 times without a knife in your hand, tell me how exhausting that is. Like, I want you to tell me, like, seriously, like, send us a message, like, on social media or whatever. I want to know. So now he would savagely uh, stab three more neighbors uh, by the age of 15, mm-hmm, including uh, Joan Heaton, who was a mother who was 40 years old, and um, her two small daughters. Yeah. Now, since, you know, the first murder he did went without any kind of punishment, he was free to just go about doing whatever he wanted to do. The FBI was called in by the police to look into a potential serial killer because of the similarities in the murders. Now, obviously, it appeared hard to connect uh, Price to the scene, but then a detective that actually knew what the fuck he was doing spotted a cut on Price's hand. He made a confession and displayed no remorse for the killings when he was apprehended. He even recalled the night he was in the Heaton's house. Okay, that's the, the woman and her two daughters that he killed. And how he bit her face as he stuck her with a knife and echoed the final sobs of her dead daughters. So he was making fun of how they were sobbing before they died. He was given a term while still a minor and he would, uh, you know, he would go around saying that uh, he would create history, quote unquote, 
after he was released and got himself an additional 10 to 25 years for a bunch of shit while he was incarcerated. And he is, uh, yeah, yeah, he's, uh, he's up for probation. Well, he was in 2020. However, in 2004, he was transferred from Rhode Island to Florida to serve his time due to his violent tendencies. Now, while in Florida in July of 2009, he was involved in a prison fight with other inmates. And while trying to break up a uh, the fight, one of the correction officers was stabbed in the finger by a shiv that Price actually had in his hand. And in the wake of the, pri- uh, the fight here, Price was transferred to another facility. And then on uh, April 4th of 2017, he was accused of stabbing a another inmate, Joshua Davis, at the Suwannee Correctional Institute in Florida with a five-inch homemade knife. And on January 18th of 2019, he was sentenced to an additional 25 years for the crime. So hopefully he's not getting out anytime soon. Let, let's, let's just hope for that. All right. So now we have, speaking of Florida, this is uh, a Florida killer here, only 14 years old. And he killed his eight-year-old neighbor in 1998 and he got himself a life sentence. All right. This is Josh Phillips. According to Phillips, Maddie Clifton came over to play some baseball uh, and he was home by himself, you know, whatever. So despite the fact that he was not permitted to have any friends over uh, when his parents weren't around, he he said, okay, cool, let's go play. So the little girl started screaming and crying loudly when he accidentally smacked her in the eye with the ball. Okay, so he obviously this part, he says, was unintentional. He then took her inside and strangled her for 15 minutes with a phone wire because his new, he knew his father was on the way uh, on the way home, and he was afraid of how his, da- his dad was going to react. Then he beat her with a bat before stuffing her body beneath his waterbed. Yeah. Yikes. So dad got home, and, uh, you know, Phillips here spent some time talking to him before going back to his room. He then stabbed the girl 11 times to stop her from crying after realizing that she was still alive. And that is what ultimately took her life now under the bed here he left her body just sitting there and his mom found it uh, after initially thinking that the waterbed was leaking okay and she later realized it was actually unfortunately the young girl's decaying body she hurried outside real fast to call the cops who came swiftly and took old phillips into custody um, from school that next day so now he was given a life sentence yes even as a juvenile all right and I'm just going to kind of read this for you here because it's it's kind of crazy or whatever. So um, they, you know, there's all kinds of appeals in this. In uh, December of 2004, they they wanted a new tr- new trial. And basically they're saying that it was too young. Okay. So in 2012, the Supreme Court of the United States case of Miller versus Alabama ruled that uh, sentencing juveniles to mandatory life in prison without a parole, without parole is unconstitutional. In November of 2015, Phillips' attorneys were consider, uh, considering Miller versus Alabama as a basis to file a resentencing hearing. Then in September of 2016, his attorney successfully appealed to the court and he was granted a new sentencing hearing, which was held in June of 2017. At the hearing, Clifton, the little girl that he murdered, uh, Clifton's mother requested that uh, his sentence be upheld. In uh, November 2017, Phillips was resentenced to life in prison, but is eligible for resentencing again this year, 2023. In December of 2019, the Florida First District Court of Appeal upheld the life sentence, saying it will be reviewed again and could be modified in 2023, quote, based on demonstrated maturity and rehabilitation. 
And he was subsequently appealed, uh, or they appealed, to the Supreme Court of Florida, who turned down his request in June of 2020. As is customary, they did not explain their reasons for declining to hear the case. So that's where he is. He is locked up and could potentially get out this year. Oh, we'll see. Oh, boy, oh, boy, oh, boy. Oh, it's so gross. All right, so Jasmine Richardson. Jasmine and her then 23-year-old boyfriend, Jeremy Stinky. Uh, yeah, well, they. I think it's Stinky or <laughs> it's Stinky, maybe S-T-E-I-N-K-E, but I'm going to call him Stinky, all right, because fuck it, Stinky. But anyway, they murdered her parents uh, and her eight-year-old brother in cold blood, all right? So on April 23rd of 2006, this comes from CrimeWire.com, by the way, uh, the bodies of the Richardson family were discovered in their home by a six-year-old boy who spotted the lifeless bodies of Mark and Deborah. that's the parents, through a first floor window. Little Jacob was later found upstairs lying on a bed. The police found that the couple's 12-year-old daughter, Jasmine Richardson, 12-year-old daughter, dating a, what was that, 23-year-old? Anyway, uh, she was missing from the home and they initially feared she had been abducted. However, evidence from the crime scene told a different story and police soon ruled out the kidnapping. Instead, shockingly, the evidence pointed to Jasmine's involvement in the murders. The next day, on April 24, 2006, Jasmine and her boyfriend, Jeremy, were located 100 miles away. Both were arrested and charged with three counts of first-degree murder. 23-year-old Jeremy Stinky was a, quote, goth (laughs) and, oh, Jesus, a self-proclaimed 300-year-old werewolf who met 12-year-old Jasmine Richardson at a punk rock concert in 2006. Jasmine immediately became enamored with him because she's 12 and the goth lifestyle. They fell deeply in love and the feeling persisted after their arrest. While awaiting trial behind bars, Jeremy proposed to Jasmine by exchanging jailhouse letters and she accepted. Aw, isn't that sweet? When Jasmine's family found out about her 23-year-old werewolf boyfriend, they became understandably furious, grounded her, and said, Absolutely not. You're not allowed to date this guy. For Jasmine and Stinky, this was reason enough for the parents to die. Jasmine had discussed plans to kill her parents with friends on more than one occasion, but none of them ever thought she was serious. During the trial, she claimed she never meant it, meant to kill her parents, that it was just, quote, stupid talk. Mm -hmm. And unfortunately for her parents and her younger brother, it became obviously much more than talk. In June 2007, Jasmine went on trial. She was 14. She pled not guilty to three counts of first-degree murder. The trial lasted uh, right around a month, and in uh, 2007, July of 2007, after three hours of deliberation, the jury brought back the verdict, guilty on all three counts. Yes. Bye. In November of 2007, Jasmine was sentenced to 10 years imprisonment, the maximum sentence allowed by the Youth Criminal Justice Act. The, the act states that any um, convicts or anyone convicted under 14 at the time uh, that they committed the crime cannot be charged as an adult and can be given uh, nothing but a, a maximum sentence of just 10 years. Uh, I don't know if I like that. So now Jasmine's sentence uh, included uh, credit for 18 months served with four years to be spent in a psychiatric facility, followed by four and a half under con- uh, conditional supervision in the community. Now, in December of 2008... Her boyfriend, old Stinky, uh-huh, was found guilty of three counts of first-degree murder and sentenced to three concurrent life sentences. 
However, I guess he's eligible for parole after serving just 25. Well, he's still, he's not getting out, right? The guy thinks he's a freaking 300-year-old werewolf. Come on, dude. Werewolves don't live that long. What the fuck? All right, now let's talk about Sandy Charles. This is crazy. I mean, not that any of these weren't crazy, because they're all crazy, and I feel not good in the belly because of it. So after watching the 80s horror film Warlock, amazing movie, by the way, uh, well, for what it is, Sandy Charles decided to take the life of a seven-year-old boy uh, with the help of an unnamed juvenile accomplice. So for him to... uh, (laughs) He... Uh, believed that in order for he could if you've seen the movie he wanted to be like the guy in warlock and thought that if he did certain things that he would get certain unique abilities okay that would mean like in the movie if you consume the liquefied fat of an unbaptized unbaptized child okay sounds right so now, uh, in the forest here, just a few hundred yards from the rural Canadian village of Sonote Crescent, I'll say that's probably wrong, but whatever, where he was, you know, living with his grandmother, the uh, yeah, the little fucker just stabbed and strangled the, uh, his first victim. After stabbing his victim, Charles pummel- pummeled the youngster with a rock, again with the fucking rock. Jeez. It's like these kids have no imagination. Just fucking find the first thing and... Uh, I'm kidding, by the way. But no, seriously, I'm, 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 I'm moving on. And But he, listen, he also picked up a beer bottle and then started slicing strips of skin and fat from the kid's body. Fucking what? He then brought the body parts home, cooked them, and ate them while admitting that he had believed that drinking boiled down Virginia's fat would grant him the ability to fly, just as in the horror movie. Ugh. He was obviously experiencing strange delusions as a result of schizophrenia, which were made worse by his frequent viewings of the movie and its sequel. He had considered murdering, uh, you know, considered murdering, but changed his mind after hearing from spirits in the room that it would be preferable for him to murder someone else. So he, like, he was going to kill himself at first, and then the spirits in the room were like, "Nah, dude, go get someone else," and he was like, "Okay." and then was committed to a mental hospital after being judged not guilty due to insanity. So the accomplice that we talked about, the unnamed accomplice from earlier, was never charged. And then Sandy decided to escape from the Psychiatric Institute All right, on uh, March 30th of 1998, but I, I guess it only lasted a day. I don't know what he's doing. And then he was sent to the Maximum Security Regional Psychiatric Center in Saskatoon, Saskatchewan, up in Canada. Eh, eh, Canada. Saskatchewan, Saskatoon. <laughs> I don't, I don't know. Whatever, it's whatever. So he was returned to court in uh, June of 2000 after being accused of assaulting a prison nurse. According to testimony, he got into a fight with another inmate and knocked the nurse unconscious at some point during the altercation. He was sentenced to a single day in solitary confinement. Then, in 2013, he was sent back to the facility in North Battleford after multiple doctors responsible for his treatment submitted statements saying that he uh, that they believed that his long-term progress warranted the move to a lower security facility. Unfortunately, he was returned to the regional psychiatric center only months later, uh, even though nobody really knows why. Then in 2014, he testified for the provincial court that he wanted to return to the North Battleford facility again. He claimed that he was working on his anger issues and wanted to begin the process of gaining enough social skills to reintegrate into society. However, 
That shit was denied, and Sandy Charles currently remains in the regional psychiatric center. Lastly, this one is from an ABC News article from February 8th of 2012. A teenager who slit her young neighbor's throat and called it, quote, enjoyable, may walk free one day. Alyssa Bustamante, 18 years of age, was sentenced to life in prison with the possibility of parole in a Missouri courtroom. The teen expressed remorse for brutally killing her neighbor, Elizabeth Olton, in October of 2009 in what prosecutors described as a thrill killing. Quote, I know words could never be enough and they can never adequately describe how horribly I feel for all of this. This is what she's telling the mother and the siblings there. Quote, if I could give my life to get her back, I would. I'm sorry. Bustamante, remember this chick here, um, she stabbed the nine-year-old girl in the chest, strangled her, sliced her throat, and left her in a shallow grave covered with leaves so she could find out what it felt like just to kill. Quote, I just fucking killed someone. I strangled them and slit their throat and stabbed them. Now they're dead. I don't know how to feel at the moment. This is what she wrote in her diary. She later added, quote, it was amazing. And that's amazing. A-H-M-A-Z-I-N-G. Yeah. Fun. As soon as you get over the, oh my God, I can't do this feeling. It's pretty enjoyable. Enjoyable. I'm kind of nervous and shaky, though. Um, I'm kind of nervous and shaky, though, right now. Okay, I got to go to church now. LOL. What the fuck? Elizabeth's mother, Patty Priest, called Bustamante, quote, an evil monster and said she, quote, hated her on the first day of the teen sentencing hearing. Prosecutor Mark Richardson had argued for life in prison, plus 71 years, accounting for the years Elizabeth lost. Quote, these sentences are appropriate and fit what happened to Elizabeth at the hands of a truly evil individual who strangled and stabbed an innocent child simply for the thrill of it. All right. This is from the prosecutor. And yeah, so 71 years. So what they do is they kind of take into account, especially when they're young like that, like how old is the average age and then they're like well you took this from them so guess what that's what you're you're staying in prison for that long plus plus, plus a lot more like go fuck, go fuck yourself so the defense cited Bustamante's depression and suicide attempt as a reason for reduced sentence and then on her YouTube page a video shows the suspect mm-hmm, little uh, Alyssa here with her brothers purposefully shocking themselves on an electrified fence which whatever kids are dumb she listed, quote, killing people as one of her hobbies under her profile. That one I'm not too cool about. I mean, that's not, I don't like that. I don't like that. Her Twitter messages around the time of the murder spoke of, quote, addiction and, quote, terrors. One message said, quote, all I want in life is a reason for all this pain. Quote, she committed the murder after deliberation, which means cool deliberation or cool reflection on the matter of any length of time. That's Cole County Prosecutor Mark Richardson, the same guy we talked about earlier. And that's what he told the court. Bustamante was sentenced to life imprisonment with the possibility of conditional release and a consecutive sentence of 30 years. Her appeal against the sentence was denied in March of 2014. Alyssa was seen by several mental health professionals, okay, who all testified that she has major depressive disorder and borderline personality disorder and probably won't be getting out anytime soon. All right, so it's time for the movies. If you're new here, this is what we do at the end of the show. We always just like to talk about movies that are related in some fashion, even though sometimes they're not. (laughs) Because we're movie nerds. I'm a movie nerd. I love movies so much. They've kind of 
they've kind of molded me into the stable person that you hear in your ear holes right now. Whatever. Anyway, so this is the best killer kid movies uh, from Collider.com. And I don't know what that is. IMDb had a bunch of weird ones, so I was just like, ah, I don't like that. So this is in, in no certain order, but we're going to go through these. Uh, the first one on this is uh, The Omen from 1976. Man, we've talked about this freaking movie so many different times. When their child dies shortly after birth, American diplomat Robert Thorne, who's Gregory Peck, is persuaded to take in a child whose mother died during childbirth without letting his wife Catherine know. They name the child Damien. Oh, and he just happens to be the son of Satan, the Antichrist. Soon there are hangings, decapitations, and an aversion to entering church. Stevens is perfect, and his chilling smile into the camera at the end of the film leaves the viewer haunted. Quote, the kid turned to the camera and said, Don't you dare smile. If you smile, I'll never talk to you. And he fought the smile, and he smiled, and it was magic. <laughs> That's from the director, Richard Donner, said that. The kid turned to the camera, and I said... Don't you dare smile. If you smile, I'll never talk to you. Oh, okay, I see what he's saying. I was like, what? What a weird movie, too. Yeah, that kid. Fuck. Uh, uh, number two, Children of the Corn from 1984. At the bequest of He Who Walks Behind the Rose, the children of Gatlin, Nebraska, are coerced by a 12-year-old preacher, Isaac, into murdering the, the adults of the uh, town as human sacrifices. From that point on, any adults unlucky enough to pass through are also sacrificed. Three years later, Bert and Vicky, adults of course, stop in the abandoned town and are chased by the bloodthirsty cult that Isaac has formed. When Vicky is caught by second-in-command Malachi and is prepared for sacrifice, it sets off a chain of events that entites... Entites? Yes, the demon is in tights. No, incites the demon god's wrath. The Stephen King adaptation, uh, Mary's Murder, The Supernatural, and The Power of Cults Effort... <laughs> without effort there you go um good yeah, it's a good movie we've talked about it numerous times it's creepy as shit oh here we go oh boy next on the list is pet cemetery the original from 1989 with page i want to play with you after moving to ludlow maine the creed family befriends their neighbor judd crandall who shows them a pet cemetery spelled with an s nearby when Church the cat is killed on the highway, Lewis Creed is taken by Judd to an old burial ground and told to bury the cat there. The next day, Kitty's back, but he isn't the same lovable pet. Alarming? Sure, but when their son Gage is killed on the same road, Lewis buries Gage there, and the next day, well, a reanimated Gage is pretty damn evil now. Hughes has to be the one, uh, has to be one of the cutest child actors of all time, so it's unsettling to see his Gage is so diabolical. Yeah, that kid was creepy. He's also the, uh, what is it? The boys have penises, girls have vaginas from uh, Kindergarten Cop. <laughs> it's amazing. Next up is The Bad Seed from 1956. This fucker is black and white. The earliest example on this list, The Bad Seed, introduces Rhoda, who seems to be your average sweet eight-year-old girl. Always wearing frilly dresses and perfect Cindy Brady, oh, Cindy Brady, sorry, pigtails. That's a weird little callback. Anyway, she may harbor some entitlement, but hey, Rhoda's an angel. Except it becomes apparent that she killed a classmate to get a medal that she felt she should have, that should have been hers. And it may not have been the first time Rhoda's done it either. Maybe it's genetics. Possibly. Turns out Mama was adopted and is the daughter of a serial killer. McCormick's portrayal nails the entitled 
emotionless and downright creepy Rhoda. Yeah, a little blonde girl with those pigtails and that look in her eyes. Yeah. Uh, next, Wicked Little Things from 2006. I don't think I've seen this one. Uh, no. In 1913, a group of children in Attatown, Pennsylvania, are buried alive in a mine after an explosion. Fast forward to today, where Karen and daughters Sarah and Emma have moved to Attatown. Attytown? Attaton? I don't know. Where, surprise, those 1913 children aren't dead, aren't dead after all. It suggested that they might want to stay indoors at night when the zombie children roam. At least Emma's making friends. Well, just one. A zombie friend. Mary. After a group of the kids eat Sarah's friends, oh boy, Karen agrees to leave town. If only Emma had told her mom she was going for a sleepover at Mary's. Oh boy. I don't know how I feel about this movie. So like they're little zombie kids? They don't look like zombies. Yeah, whatever. Uh, let's see here. This one is The Good Son. Oh, this is Macaulay Culkin. Yeah, he's a little prick in this. From 1993. Now, this is what you call an about face. Macaulay Culkin ditches his lovable Kevin from Home Alone to play the malevolent Henry in The Good Son, and it works in his favor. When Mark, who's Elijah Wood, a very young Elijah Wood, stays with his aunt and uncle for a time, he and his cousin Henry become fast friends. The friendship, shall we say, dissipates as Henry displays his violent and psychopathic ways more and more every day. Violent and psychopathic. Not too dissimilar to Kevin McAllister, if you think about it. But with consequences. Uh, that's what? It's weird. I didn't write that. This is from Collider. Well, whatever. Uh, let's see. This one, 2008 Home Movie? Eh, not familiar with this one. No, it's found footage. <laughs> A found footage horror movie that, uh, by most accounts, should have received far more eyes on it than it did. Father David Poe and his wife Claire, a child psychologist, moved to a remote home in New York with their twin children, Emily and Jack. David decides to document every life event in the home. Bad call, Dave. The camera footage captures <laughs> the camera footer foot footer. Camera footage captures the twins' increasing evil behavior, from throwing rocks at their father to stapling frogs to trees and crucifying cats. Jesus, see, again with the cats. And naturally, disturbingly more. It's a movie that sticks with you, and the Williams twins are a real find. Oh, boy. Never heard of that one. It's so funny, like, when the, these people write this stuff on here, it's like they don't actually, like, say it out loud. But then when I say it out loud, I'm like, uh, <laughs> uh that's not a good one. Uh, 2012, up next here, uh, Sinister. Like home movie, Sinister is another film that sticks with you and not in a good way. True crime writer Ellison Oswalt moves, uh, oh, it's Ethan Hawke, yeah. Moves his wife and two children into a home that, known only to Ellison, was where a family was murdered by hanging. Ellison finds a box of Super 8 movies upstairs and plays them, each containing footage of families being murdered by someone holding the camera. Turns out the guilty parties are all children under the influence of, pa a, of pagan deity Bugul? Bujul. Bugle. Ah, whatever. The chill you feel when the deeds are done and the children turn toward the camera is indescribable. A personal favorite on the list. Oh, I guess I gotta go back and revisit that. I love Ethan Hawke. He's been just everywhere right now. And this one, creepy ass kids. Ugh. Village of the Dam from 1960. Ugh. I don't even want to look at this one. Another early entry into the genre. Genre. Months after the entire village falls asleep for a number of hours, multiple women give birth to children that grow very fast and have blonde hair and glowing eyes. Doesn't seem weird at all. Doesn't take long before... That was me, not him. I'm way better at this. It doesn't take long before learning the 12 highly intelligent children led by David... Uh, let's see. Uh, communicate telepathically and can read minds. 
Also fun, they can make people kill themselves by driving into a wall, shooting themselves, or setting themselves on fire. You can see its DNA in Children of the Corn, and despite its oft-parodied premise, it's still creepy as hell. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's, it is what it is. I don't know. I'm not a big fan. Next on our list is The Ring from 2002. A cursed videotape kills anyone who watches it in exactly seven days. That's a hell of a late fee, so why wouldn't journalist Rachel Keller check it out, especially after her niece is a victim? A hell of a late, come on. Oh, low-hanging fruit. Now with only seven days to go, Rachel seeks out the truth, which leads her to the life of one Samara Morgan, a girl with supernatural powers who was left to die at the bottom of a well by her mother and is now a vengeful spirit. Doesn't ring a bell? It's the film with the infamously creepy scene where the TV turns itself on and plays the video in question, starring uh, Malefic? Malefic? What the fuck is that word? (laughs) I'm making fun of him. He's coming up with, must be good at Scrabble. Uh, Samara dragging her drowned body out of the well. Walk towards the TV screen and crawl the fuck out of it. The best of the J-horror remake craze of the early 2000s, easily. Yeah, that, that, it was it was creepy. Because Naomi, 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 if I could say her name right, Naomi Watts was awesome in it. Jesus. Then, last but not least, 2009's Orphan. Mm. After the stillborn death of his, uh, his, excuse me, of their daughter, John and Kate, which is Vera Farmiga, and uh, Peter Sarsgaard, which is pretty cool. Coleman, um, uh, let's see, they adopt Esther, a nine-year-old Russian girl from a local orphanage. Their five-year-old daughter gets along with Esther, but 12-year-old Daniel does not. Good call. They learn Esther is actually 33, is 33-year-old Lena, who suffers from a hormonal dwarfism disorder and is posed as a young girl most of her life and killed at least seven people. Why wouldn't you lead with that? Oh, boy. Furman is, simply put, amazing. A child playing an adult playing a child, bringing depth to her, uh, a depth to her crazy that's remarkable. There is no doubt her reprisal of the role will be just as memorable. So there you go. That's that's that one. And is, is Vira, Vera Farmiga, is that the chick that is in all the... Yeah, that's got to be. Whatever. Anyway, that's the movies. And that was... Ah, Kids That Kill. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. A little uneasy in, in spots there. And, you know, I tried to go... Try to go softly into that good night. Rage against the light, you know. You know, I, I tried. And then, sorry, I'm reciting dumb shit. Anyway, so that was it. I want to know what you guys think about it. Do us a favor, give us a uh, you know a message in, on on the website. That's the uh, official website, themidnighttrainpodcast.com, or on our socials. Let us know if you like that one, if it disturbed you, or you know, I don't know if you have a kid that you think might do that. And if that's the case. Call the fucking cops. Stop listening to this dumbass show and just call the cops. That's it. Okay. Anyway, while you're over at the Midnight Train Podcast.com, you can buy some super sweet merchandise. And we have all kinds of cool stuff over there hats, uh, phone cases, um, leggings, you name it. And uh, you can get all that stuff and you can kind of, you know, support and rep, you know, show everyone that you're cooler than they are. And if you like what you heard from us, consider being a show producer by heading to the midnighttrainpodcast.com and clicking on the Patreon button or go to patreon.com forward slash the midnight train podcast. For as little as five bucks a month, you can get all kinds of cool stuff over there. All right. But mostly, listen, it's all about the bonuses, right? So if you're a diehard train fan here, if you're if you're if you're liking what you're hearing, 
and you want to help produce this motherfucker, our Patreon is for you. Most importantly, please, please, please share the show to everybody. If you like what you're hearing, let everyone know you like it. Tell them about it because word of mouth is seriously like that's the best way to you know get out there right now. So if you do that, that'd be awesome. We'd appreciate it. Now, obviously, we love music and want future generations of musicians because I'm a musician and I'm a music fan. I love it. And we want them to have accessibility and music education. So we decided to give to a great cause. The Save the Music Foundation, as I've mentioned for a while now, their mission is to help students, schools, and communities reach their full potential through the power of making music. As one of the leading music foundations in the United States, they support their partner communities in three ways. By donating musical instruments and musical technology, providing support services for teachers, and advocating for music education. Now, we donate 20% of our merchandise sales and our Patreon donations from this show as well as Icons and Outlaws. And you should be listening to Icons and Outlaws. More is coming for that. (laughs) So do us a favor. Support the show. Get tons of bonuses and help a great cause. And uh, for more information or to donate personally, go to savethemusic.org. All right. Obviously, don't forget, you know, follow us on all the socials. We're on the the Twitter, on the Instagiggle, the Tuck Tuck, YouTubes. And if you listen on Spotify, uh, Apple, which Apple, I've noticed that Apple Podcasts have been screwing up. Like every time I listen to a show on Apple Podcasts, it like bounces back and forth. It'll skip back an hour, uh, um, um, not an hour, like a minute, and then it'll all of a sudden go up like a forward a minute. It just eh, it sucks. And I guess if you download the shows um, from them instead of just streaming it, it's supposed to work better. I guess that's what that's what I'm hearing. So anyway, do us a favor, review us on anything you can. That's super important, unless you're going to give us a one star like the one guy recently did. (laughs) And by the way, fuck you, buddy. And not that he's listening now. He's trying to say we were literally quoting from a a, a book. And the book has the same information as uh, the Wikipedia does. And so he was like, oh, they're going word for word from the Wikipedia. No, we we were quoting the book, you turd. Anyway, so listen, honestly, I cannot thank you guys enough for listening, uh, for for sharing it to people, to everybody that's out there. Um, I'm hearing, I'm walking into stores and stuff, like uh, we have a liquor store down the street, and I'm just going to give them a shout out to Ross um, Wine and Beverage right down the street here. Um, I walked in and was getting some, not that I would get booze or anything, (laughs) but I was grabbing some stuff, and uh, the the, the lovely lady behind the counter was like, yeah, I've been listening to your podcast. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. So shout out to them and to everybody else out there. Like, it's super cool. Thank you so much. It really means the world to me, and that's honestly why I'm still doing this, regardless of who may or may not be here with me, okay? And uh, obviously, you can tell someone's not here with me. Um my son, Logan, unfortunately, has some stuff going on, and he's going to deal with that. And then uh, it's nothing severe. He's not like going to prison or some shit, so calm down. But he's just got some stuff, personal stuff he's going to take care of, and then hopefully he'll be back. But in the meantime, I'm going to start having some uh, some guests come in and do the show with me. Just to, you know, have some people, some fun times, some call-ins, if you will, some throwbacks, some, some folks you guys may remember and or have heard from before. So... That's going to be happening, and uh, yeah, you know, it'll be good. But anyway, you guys really do make me just, uh, this is such a passion of mine that, I mean, almost four years deep, and I've gone through some shit (laughs) with this. So trying to do it and and keep it going, um, having a more than full-time job and being married to an amazing woman who who is just fantastic and, and kids and 
you know, all kinds of shit. Like it's, this is, uh, this is my release. This is the way I get to learn about stuff and talk about stuff. And, and you guys, uh, allow me to do that. So I want to thank you, uh, from the bottom of my heart. And speaking of people who actually show us the most love. Okay. The most love. Okay. Is of course our, uh, our first class passengers, AKA the Patreon poopers. And if you don't know what that is, well, you should probably go back and listen or don't and just keep wondering what the hell that means. So to Dale Wells, Mindy F, George DeJesus, Megan McTerry, Tomislav Sobota, Amanda Denz, Chris Lucas, Zachary Danielson, Joseph Ramo, Kelly Ryan, Nathan Diekman, Nicholas Cooper, Caitlin McKinney, Trent Scott, Spencer Dunlap, Jacob Cook, Maggie Brothers, Miles Campbell, Brian Gunselman, Pumpkin Escobar, Mac Doherty, Turner Cox, Sydney Sayer, Janet Cheryl, uh, Cheryl, I I said it right, Cheryl that time, (laughs) Chad Flint, Chris McLeod, Justin Kowalczyk, Rob Webb over there at the Funbox Podcast, Christina Skelton, and Jessica Bartolomei from the Sisters Skelton Podcast. Love them to death. Thank you, ladies, for everything, and just... Get over there and listen to them. They're amazing. To Maria Gibbs, to Chainsaw. What the fuck? Jigsaw, Rick Resler, Courtney Bachelor, Katie Bravenick, and of course, my buddy, Bill Birch. And he's not here to do it right now, so I guess I have to. Oh, good for you. I don't have the button anymore because Logan was doing it. Except he sounded like a Jewish lady. Anyway, um, so yeah, I would just thank you guys so much. Uh, spread the word. You know, do us a favor. Tell everyone you know, even if you get on the, like your socials and just say, "Hey, I've been listening to this weird ass show with this, this guy," and occasionally people come in and talk <laughs> with him, and they're funny. Hopefully, they are, and they're informative. Hopefully, and kind of twisted because, well, that's me. Anyway, if you want your name to be mentioned, do us a favor. Sign up over at Patreon, uh, become a producer, and yeah. Uh, okay, so that that was a weird episode. Those kids, I don't know. I kind of feel bad. All those kids, all my kids are out of the house for the most part, so I'm feeling all right. You guys be careful, especially if you have kids. What are they doing right now? Are they watching you? Are they giving you a weird look? If they are. You should just look at him and say, Choo-choo, motherfuckers! Now go home and get your fucking shine box.